Hello, I'm Curious City founder and senior producer Jennifer Brandel. And on behalf of our team here, I want to say we missed you. I know we said we were taking a podcast break, and we are, but we can't help wanting to bring you some great stories you might not have caught because they haven't actually been on our podcast yet. So we're going to fix that right now. Okay, here comes the theme music. It's time to get official. Welcome to WBEZ's Curious City, your place to ask questions about Chicago, the region, and its people. So here's what you need to know before we jump into a history-related question that we answered with two stories. In early December, 73 years ago, the United States got embroiled in World War II. On December 7, 1941, Japan bombed Pearl Harbor and we declared war with them. And just a few days later, on December 11th, Japan's allies, Germany and Italy, declared war on the United States. It was on. Reporter Edie Rabinowitz will pick things up from here. History buff Bill Healy was talking with some friends after a golf game. About World War II trivia, and a question came up as to whether there were German POW camps in and around Chicago. And... uh, Nobody had a direct answer. If they were camps, we couldn't figure out where they would have been. I'm curious as to whether there were German POW camps, and if so, where were they? So he turned to WBEZ's Curious City for the answer, and they turned to me, Edie Rubinowitz. Bill, I dug up a bunch of stuff for you. First, I'll answer where these German prisoner camps were. And I'll tell you some stories I found along the way. So, Bill, here's the where part. It happens that one of these World War II POW camps was not too far from your home in Orland Park. It was Camp Thornton in the Sweet Woods Forest Preserve near the village of Thornton, Illinois. But I also found POW camps to the north and west of the city in Glenview, Arlington Heights, and Des Plaines. There was another in north suburban Fort Sheridan, which was home to a military compound until 1993. The Chicago area's POW camps were not unique. Judith Gansberg is the author of Stalag USA, The Remarkable Story of German POWs in America. She explains that Allied POW camps abroad were overcrowded. At the same time, Liberty ships left the U.S. with food and ammunition for our troops in North Africa and Europe. But those ships would come back empty. You've got all these POWs. Did it make sense to put extra food or to put some of the food for the POWs and so forth in North Africa, it made no sense. It made more sense to put them on those Liberty ships, bring them back to America. Now you have to figure all those farmers who no longer had workers because they were off in the infantry, it made very good sense to put POW camps all over the country, especially in areas where they needed farm labor. Altogether, more than 370,000 German World War II POWs were held in the United States. They did everything from farm labor to garbage detail. In some Chicago-area camps, security tended to be low, and by the end of the war, German prisoners became friendly with guards and area farmers. And in some cases, German prisoners of war in our area even picked flowers. And that relates to one of the most interesting stories I found while researching Bill Healy's question. It's about one prisoner who left a camp here, returned to Germany, only to come to the Chicago area many, many years later to make a special delivery. The story centers around Pesci's flower shop and his planes. Chris Pesci inherited the family business, which was pretty close to where Camp Pine used to be. Chris says back during World War II, many people had no idea about the prisoner camp. 
But his dad knew. And that's one thing my dad used to joke about when he used to go there and him and his friends sneak under the fence trying to see if they can get the guy in the searchlights to catch him. If they got caught, the guy would say, come on, kids, just go home, scram. Chris Pesci's dad's dad, Grandpa Frank, was less of a prankster. Grandpa Frank came from Luxembourg, and his culture was similar to the German prisoners. And when Grandpa Frank ran the flower shop, he employed prisoners from Camp Pine. He even put meat in their soup. So I think people here really sympathize with the prisoners. And I know my grandfather did. He could talk German to them all, and he could cook them bratwurst and make them a sandwich. Mary Pesci remembers this time, too. She was a teenager when she worked in the family business, and she'd pick and plant flowers in the nursery right alongside the POWs. And then they would talk in German and then say things in German about us and then didn't think any, you know. But we happened to have another girl that worked with us. Her name was Bernette Beer, and she was a real German. She came from her, her mother and dad, spoke German too, so she understood them. So at lunchtime, she'd tell us what they said. That's when the truth came out. One German prisoner had a crush on Mary's older sister, Dolores Pesci. That was Rudolf Velti. He'd been caught while fighting in Africa. Rudolf Velti spent time at several POW camps, but by all accounts, Camp Pine was his favorite. And not just because of his crush on Dolores Pesci. In fact, Rudolf Velti remembered his time so fondly that decades after he was released back to Germany, he told an American cousin that he wanted to visit Chicago. He said that in the 1960s, and then in 1996, he went through with it. He returned to suburban Des Plaines and Camp Pine. Velti met up with that American cousin, Art Bottombender, who tells me what Rudolf Velti said and did on the trip. And he said, you know, on Sundays, various groups came and we had church services, we played soccer, we... He said, it was just great. He said, we were basically on vacation, away from the war. And during that 1996 trip, the two cousins went to Pesci's flower shop. They met Mary Pesci, who still remembers what Rudolf Velti did next. And he went to know where Dolores was. And I, we said, well, she was married, and she lived in Gages Lake. And they went to know where that was at. So he goes to the flower shop, buys a dozen red carnations, and go, <laughs> goes and drives out to Gages Lake. And, of course, her husband, Gene, was there, and he was, he was the guy that was in the Marines. Art Bottomender drove Rudolf Velti to Dolores Pesci's house, where they met Dolores and her husband, Eugene. There, Rudolf shared a secret. And he said, I've always wanted to... And I said, what? So he told me, and he said, could you translate this to Eugene, her husband? He said, I've always wanted to give her a hug. And so I translated to her husband. And Eugene said, he said, hug hell, give her a kiss. Art Bottombender says he went to his car to get his camera. He returned in time to catch Rudolf Velti plant a second kiss on Dolores Pesci. Health problems soon caught up with Velti, though, and he died within a year of visiting his American past at Camp Pine, in the Pesci Flower Shop.
Reporter Edie Rabinowitz found other stories about life at World War II POW camps in the Chicago area, and stories that weren't so lovely, that didn't involve hugs and kisses. These German POW camps, of course, held a lot of tension. And one big point of friction was between Nazi prisoners and anti-Nazi prisoners. There were beatings, suicides, and, as Edie discovered, also a daring escape. A warning here for sensitive listeners, this story includes a kind-hearted elderly man swearing. And since this is a podcast, we're not going to bleep it. Okay, again, here's reporter Edie Rabinowitz. Many of the Chicago-area POW camps were low-security and relatively peaceful. But some camps were marked by violence. Historian Judith Gansberg writes about this in a book called Stalag USA. She says some camps had a strong Nazi presence, and the most fervent Nazis would threaten their campmates. They'd hand you a rope and say, commit suicide, or your family back in Germany will pay the price. There were also kangaroo courts where they decided, the Nazis decided, you were guilty of some infraction and cooperating with the Americans. And you would uh, be, suddenly find yourself uh, strangled on your way to the toilet in the middle of the night. Gensberg says Eleanor Roosevelt learned about these incidents, and she worked on her husband, the president, to do something. The military then separated Nazi prisoners from anti-Nazi prisoners, and it started re-education programs. By publishing a newspaper for them to read that was very subtly, slowly denazifying them, by showing them films that we selected that their Nazi uh, comrades didn't select, things like Abe Lincoln in Illinois. We gain democracy, and there is now doubt whether it is fit to survive. So they would get the picture we wanted them to have. And then we slowly but surely began running actual schools in the camps, teaching them about American democracy and where it came from and how it worked and so forth. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. Gansberg says the re-education programs met resistance, though, when it came to films about atrocities at Nazi concentration camps in Europe. Sadly, the one anti-democratic attitude they found it very hard to break was anti-Semitism. It was so ingrained in them that, you, you know, to them a Jew was just a piece of dirt, and there was very little they could do about that. Dr. Quentin Young witnessed some racist attitudes up close. In 1943, Dr. Young wasn't a doctor yet. He was in the military and oversaw a half-dozen German POWs at Camp Grant in Rockford, Illinois. Young tells a story when German prisoners refused to get off a truck. They were supposed to clean the barracks of black soldiers who were segregated from barracks for whites. But the Germans wouldn't budge. Young says his supervisor intervened. Young says this man was religious and conservative, and he didn't talk like other soldiers, meaning he didn't cuss. But uh, the sergeant didn't until this moment when they refused to take care of the black camp. And then he, he let loose, motherfucker. <laughs> he, didn't, he knew the words. He just wasn't using them. Young's supervisor demanded the German prisoners clean the African-American barracks, or they would go back to camp and never get out. They complied. Nearly 70 years later, this moment at Camp Grant stands out in Dr. Young's mind as a small victory. America had some troubling racial policies, and the German prisoners had wanted to exploit that. Very knowingly, 
you know, uh, saw how they could possibly create dissension in the American ranks, and we passed the test. Camp Grant, near Rockford, was also briefly home to a famous escapee. Reinald Pabell had been moved from Camp Grant to work at a corn cannery near Washington, Illinois. Pabell rejected the U.S. government's efforts at re-education and wanted to learn about America on his own. He wrote about this in a memoir titled Enemies Are Human, read here by an actor. I was convinced that any re-education must come from within, from our own ranks, not from a puppet pushed by the victors. So I decided to stick with my comrades. And yet, when some of my closest friends who had been with me through hell and high water became cool toward me, the tension between Nazis and anti-Nazis put quite a strain on my nerves. So Powell planned what he called his E-Day, Escape Day. He dyed his government-issued khakis blue, sold his war medals to U.S. guards for cash, and studied how previous escapees were caught. Then, on September 10, 1945, he ducked through a fence and trees to a nearby highway and hitchhiked to Peoria. He caught a bus to Chicago, slept in all-night theaters, and then got a job as a dishwasher. His boss asked him for his social security number. He got one and began using the name Philip Brick. Pablo found steadier work, got married, and even opened a bookstore, which for a while was on Argyle Street on the city's north side. But this new life eventually gently overlapped with his former POW life. Pablo had received an order for textbooks from Fort Sheridan, where he was once held briefly. I enjoyed filling this order because I derived certain sweet satisfaction from it, which made me feel that our account had been settled. It appeared as though the past had indeed been buried forever. Grass had grown over it, leaving no trace. Almost. Pabel had mistakenly used his real name on a care package he sent to his sister back home in Germany. In May of 1953, eight men entered his door, more customers than he had ever seen at once. They were, in fact, eight FBI men. Pabel's case drew local and national attention. Kara Kretz, the daughter of Pavel's attorney, has records of how it all played out. So you've got some pictures here. This is him and his wife, Avis, with their child. You know, and he looks like a real bookworm. He's a small guy, kind of... Kara Kretz found her dad's scrapbook in her basement, complete with yellowed news articles about Pavel's case. Got a picture of him in his bookstore. You know, so this is the stuff my dad saved was these two articles about him. Pablo had saved the lives of two American soldiers in Italy. Those two soldiers were among many who testified on Pablo's behalf during his trial in Chicago. My dad uh, talks about where they had uh, 150 people lined up to come to his defense and talk about he was a good citizen, that he had a good nature, that he was a law-abiding citizen, okay, except for the part where he's living under a false name and a fugitive. Philip Brick, or rather, Reinald Pablo was allowed back to the U.S. a few months later. Eventually, though, he returned to Germany, where he died in 2008 at age 92. His daughter runs the bookstore he founded there, Antiquariat Reinald Pabel. Those stories were reported by Edie Rabinowitz. 
If you're interested in learning more about World War II POW camps around Chicago, we got a map online along with photos of Rudolf Velti and Reinhold Pavel. One last thing, you got to check out the comments on this story. We produced these pieces last year, and since then, people have been sharing fascinating experiences and memories of POW camps around Chicago. You can catch all of this at wbez.org slash Curious City. Thanks for listening to the Curious City podcast. don't go too far. We'll soon have an hour-long special of some other stories you might not have heard from our archives. And we'll be back in 2015 with a whole new season answering your questions. Here's just a few that we'll be taking on. My name is Esther Bowen. I work at Argonne National Laboratory, and I was curious about traffic patterns in the Chicagoland region. You know, is traffic on Thursday actually worse than traffic on Friday? I'm Mike Vendel. I'm a technical consultant. So my question is how massive skyscrapers stay stable in a sandy, swampy uh, land of Chicago. My name is Emily, and I am a nurse practitioner, and my daughter's name is Satchel. And she's five. So my daughter and I were wondering, what happens when you flush the toilet? Where does everything go? We'll have answers about your commute and, well, your poop, and much more in 2015. You can ask your questions to us at wbez.org slash Curious City. Curious City is produced by me, Jennifer Brandel, Sean Ali, Logan Jaffe, WBEZ, and AIR, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and the Doris and Howard Conant Fund for Journalism. 